Well, welcome back to the Burrowshire Podcast. My name is Brandon Vaught. I'm one of the co-hosts here with my best friend who is in a new location. We'll talk about that here in a second. His name is Father Blake Britton. Father Blake, good to see you. Thank you. Likewise, always a blessing to be with you, even in this uh, these new digs that I got. Yeah, <laughs> you were a little apologetic about the setup. I know you're like, oh, I don't have the lighting yeah. right, the setup right. There's no books behind you, but the reason is because you are at a new parish. This is day yes. number two of being at the parish. Tell us what's happened during the past month since we last saw each other. Yeah, most certainly. A lot has happened. You know, again, I apologize for how uncouth my my background is. As you know, uh, I typically like to have the books and Pope Benedict, uh, but they're absent in the current time. I feel like a like a gypsy in traveling transition, <laughs> moving from one place to another. So I've actually been reassigned uh, in the Diocese of Orlando, not just to one parishes, but to serve three parishes in Lakeland, Florida, as well as two schools. So St. Anthony, St. Joseph, and Resurrection, and then the two schools are at St. Anthony and Resurrection. Uh, wonderful community. It's sort of a blast from the past because I'm returning to where I did my pastoral year in order to provide ministry for the people of God here. So it's been lovely uh, returning to this place and seeing a lot of old, familiar faces, um, and also a lot of new faces, and I'm very excited. Uh, but again, it's also put a bit of a disruption in our social media and our, our podcast. Uh, so I had to do this uh, sort of makeshift setup for the time being to keep our schedule. But I'm always excited to be with all of you, and I'm very thankful for the gift of this new assignment. I'm I'm excited. I'm excited to be able to serve these different communities and and to preach the gospel and be a priest of Jesus Christ. So the Burrowshire podcast will continue. I know that was yes. a question you got from a lot of your former parishioners who were uh, so devastated to learn that you were leaving. Uh, of course, they're going to miss you at the parish, but I know a lot of them were saying, well, what about the podcast? Is that going to continue? Yes. If Father Blake and I have electricity, <laughs> we will somehow make it happen that we will record these episodes. Absolutely. Um, Absolutely. We, we were going to do an episode here on how to attend and enjoy opera uh, that's something that's new to me. Father Blake was a trained opera singer and he got me into opera and we've attended a handful of operas and I've come to admire it and enjoy it. Um, however, we made a last minute pivot because of COVID, as you probably realize, there's not a lot of operas being performed right now. So we didn't want to give you all this excitement to attend maybe your first opera and then not have the opportunity. So we'll table that one and I'm sure we'll come back to it. What we decided to focus on instead was this topic of Catholicism, Florida, and the Sacred Acre. The Sacred Acre. It's a special place in the hearts of both Father Blake and I, but a special geographical place here in the state of Florida. Um, it's all centered around the city of St. Augustine. Now, my son, one of my second oldest son, is named Augustine, and it's usually a, a good way to tell the Catholics apart from the non-Catholics is when they see that word, they say Augustine. When non-Catholics see it, they see they say Augustine. You know, you'll find many right. Anglicans <laughs> or Protestants referring to St. Augustine. Uh, but most Floridians refer to this town as St. Augustine. It's on the, the east coast of Florida, kind of the upper northeast uh, coast of Florida. But it's a really important town historically, and I'll mention a few reasons why here, but it also has a, an enormous import religiously, um, and, and we'll get into all the reasons why. But um, first of all, Father Blake, I'd be curious to know, did, did you go there a lot growing up? I know attending the public schools uh, myself, fourth grade 
it was always the trip you would go to St. Augustine because in fourth right. grade, you'd always study Florida history. And so every elementary kid in Florida uh, at some point makes their way to St. Augustine. I'm guessing you went there a lot too as a kid. I did. I went there growing up with my family. It's one of our favorite places in the state of Florida. Just a, a lovely, lovely city uh, with, of course, rich history. My father in particular is a history buff. So anywhere that we can go that has ancient castles or, or different forms of archaeological digs, such as St. Augustine, we like to, uh, to go and visit. But I was also required to go there in my Catholic school in fourth grade. We also study uh, Florida history. And as, as a Catholic school, we did attend uh, the St. Augustine field trip. So I think that's sort of a staple <laughs> in all Floridian children's formation is to go see this great city. I'll mention just a, a few of the highlights here, um, maybe just from a, a secular perspective or just non-religious reasons to, to go visit St. Augustine if you've never been. Um, first of all, it's the oldest city in the United States. I know there's one or two others that make that claim, but I think it's pretty well documented that St. Augustine is the oldest continuous city in the United mm -hmm. States. It was founded in September 1565. 1565. So think about that. We're That's like right after the Protestant Reformation. I mean, we're talking right. 500 years ago. Um, when we were going there as elementary students, we went to all the normal touristy type attractions. So you have, for example, the Fountain of Youth. So Ponce de Leon came looking for the Fountain of Youth and ended up in St. Augustine. And they have this spring that is purported to have been the fountain. So, you know, you can spend... There's a funny story about that. I got to interject, you know, and, and whether it's it's mythology or not, it's still worth mentioning just because of how humorous it is. But apparently Ponce de Leon was looking for the Fountain of Youth, went to Puerto Rico, is reported to be there, was not able to find it because the Native Americans there said, no, no, it's in another land. So he he arrived in Florida and he's looking for it. And he saw how the Native Americans all were elderly and they had long hair and they were very, very tall. Whereas the average Spaniard was, you know, five foot something and uh, and did not have very long life expectancy. So he thought, surely these people drink from the Fountain of Youth. And they were like, oh, no, no, there's this island you have to go back to that has the Fountain <laughs> of Youth. So this sort of misguiding Ponce de Leon saying, go back and forth, just trying to get him out of Florida. you know. But eventually he did. He settled on the fact, quote unquote, that the Fountain of Youth was in St. Augustine. <laughs> so you can go pay, you know, $30 to get, take a tour of the Fountain of Youth and then $20 and to it. buy a, a little bottle of the water that will extend your age purportedly. And that's, you know, Brandon and I are actually both around 65 or 70 years old. <laughs> We've been drinking from it for, from, for years, you know. That's <laughs> <laughs> the secret to our success. St. Uh, Augustine also has a really rich history of pirates and ghost stories. They have all sorts of trolley tours around this quaint little uh, town at nighttime. It's also well connected to Henry Flagler, the commercial magnate who uh, made his money as an industrialist, an oil magnate, but especially through railroads. He built railroads up and down the East Coast, all the way down to Florida. Um, he was richer than you can imagine. So he built all of these uh, ornate churches and institutions all around the St. Augustine area, some of the most beautiful buildings in the Southeast. Um, for example, Flagler College, still a operational college today, was built by him and gorgeous, you know, stonework and marble and libraries and classrooms. And then there's numerous churches, Presbyterian churches, Anglican churches, Methodist churches that Flagler donated money to help build. So uh, a lot of beautiful architecture in and around the city. 
Probably the most famous piece of architecture, though, is the Castillo de San Marcos, or the Castle of St. Mark. It's, it's a huge fort right on the coastline that you can still go in and explore. You can go to the dungeons. They fire off cannons there. Kids, I think, <laughs> love it. But it's the oldest masonry fort in the continental United States. And I know, Blake, um, one thing you always emphasize when you give tours to the kids and and tours to the families is that it's it remains the one of the few unconquered forts in America. Yes, most certainly. I, I very you know proudly boast that as a Floridian, <laughs> it was never officially conquered um, till this day. Till this day. A couple other cool things if you want to go visit St. Augustine. Um, they have a Ripley's Believe It or Not museum. I'm not even sure if I've ever been inside of it, but right <laughs> outside outside the walls of the Ripley's Believe It or Not museum you can go to this part without actually paying admission they have the world's only full-size replica of michelangelo's david so the the famous david statue which i think is in florence if i'm not mistaken so the originals in florence the only other full-size replica in the world is in saint augustine florida and you can go there and and see it for free and it's it's breathtaking it's magnificent it's, it's really the accuracy is is uncanny i mean i was blown away by how beautiful it is really i mean it's, it's a wonderful replica very very well done <laughs> and then finally the last major uh attraction now this is maybe blending the the worlds between the secular and the religious is the great cathedral basilica of mm -hmm. saint augustine or saint augustine depending on how you want to pronounce it this was is the the first parish in America, the first mm -hmm. Catholic church in America. It was established in 1565, uh, the same, <clears throat> same year that St. Augustine was, was settled. And it's the oldest continuous Catholic congregation in the United States. Um, what yes. I especially like, it's a, it's a beautiful church, um, and it has many, a couple different side chapels, some beautiful artwork, but they also have a first-class relic of St. Augustine. It has a bone of of St. Augustine. So my family, especially with a little son named Augustine, we always try to stop by there and see that. Um, so that's those reasons, I think, alone are enough to make St. Augustine just an intriguing uh, vacation place. So if you live anywhere in the Southeast, you might consider taking a family trip to St. Augustine. But what we want to highlight in this episode is the religious uh, significance mm -hmm. of this place, the spiritual value, and why it's a real pilgrimage site. Not just a, a place to do fun stuff on vacation, it has that, but why it has spiritual value. And, and maybe, Father Blake, I'll turn it over to you uh, on that point. Yeah, I think that's important uh, what you're emphasizing, because a lot of us, even you and I, when we attended our fourth grade field trips, you went to St. Augustine more as this sort of tourist hotspot. Uh, without really being educated on the religious importance, the religious significance of this place, that it really is one of the most sacred places in the United States, a place that is even consecrated by the blood of martyrs that we'll get to later on in this episode. But the state of Florida, or La Florida as the Spaniards call it, was began as an evangelical mission territory. Its origins are explicitly religious, so it's important for us to really understand Florida to understand, especially the city of St. Augustine, to see it first and foremost as a religious pilgrimage site. That's what it was founded as. That's what it was created as. Um, and one place in particular uh, in the city of St. Augustine that is most sacred is what they call the sacred 
acre, the sacred acre. Now, this is the piece of land where the Spaniards originally landed and celebrated the first recorded mass in the United States of America. Uh, and it was done by Father Pedro Menendez and, uh, excuse me, by Father Lopez. I apologize, Father Lopez. And uh, the Shrine of La Leche was also established later on in the 1620s. And for those of you who have not been to the National Shrine of Our Lady of La Leche, which means Our Lady of Nursing, Our Lady of the Milk, it's traditionally a, a Spanish devotion that came over from Spain and was then established as the first ever Marian devotion of the United States of America. Uh, it is the oldest Marian shrine in the United States. Uh, and it's dedicated to Our Lady of Nursing, Our Lady of, of Good Health. And she's holding, the statue of Our Lady is holding the Christ child breastfeeding him. It, it, it's just breathtaking. I encourage you to Google it or look up a picture of it whenever you can, but even more importantly, to visit it in person. And so this is the oldest Marian shrine uh, dedicated in the United States of America. And there's many Catholic Floridians who have the tradition, especially mothers and fathers or newlywed couples, of going to this shrine to either A, pray for the healthy conception of a child, or B, to consecrate their child to the Blessed Mother after conceiving the child. And I've had the privilege of consecrating several children who are in the womb within the walls of that sacred uh, chapel, that sacred shrine of Valleche. So it really is a, a powerful place. And like I said, we're going to get more and more into the the colonial foundations and the Catholic foundations of the state of Florida. But there again, is just some of the immediate places you can go. You go to the Mission Nombre de Dios, which is the mission in the name of God. That is also located at the same place as the Sacred Acre. Um, there's a museum there that has the casket of one, one of the conquistadors, Pedro Menendez. Um, it has a lot of relics there from the 16th, 17th, and 18th century. really is a, a spectacular historical place and spiritual place to go. They even have daily mass there. So if you want to go and visit St. Augustine, you do have a place to attend daily Mass at the uh, Sacred Acre, the Mission Nombre de Dios. Uh, it is a regular pilgrimage site for me. Uh, I go there multiple times a year uh, just for spiritual renewal, and I know that many Floridians do the same. Uh, and I strongly encourage all those who are Floridians and listening to do so. But of course, those who listen around the country and around the world, if you ever find yourself in the state of Florida, uh, the land of the free and the brave, uh, you are more than welcome to, uh, and I strongly encourage you, to visit that wonderful shrine of La Leche and the Sacred Acre. Yeah, that shrine is very special to the two of us. I'm, I think fondly of the many times we've had Mass there together. Two stick out to me. One was right after you were ordained. We had a Mass there mm -hmm. uh, in Thanksgiving for your ordination in the shrine of Our Lady yes. La Leche. And then um, after the birth of our, of our seventh child, Maria, um, we had her baptized. You baptized her. And then mm -hmm. uh, we went to St. Augustine for a Mass of Thanksgiving there as well. So that place just has this deep spiritual power and, and significance, especially if you have a devotion to Our Lady, and especially, I'd say, for mothers, for those hoping to conceive but have been having issues conceiving. There's uh, numerous stories of couples who were told to be infertile but then went to that shrine and, and prayed and asked Our Lady's intercession and then miraculously were able to have children despite yes. all the doctor's prognostications. So um, there's there's been documented, I, I hesitate to use the word as strong as miracle, but documented surprises or unexpected conceptions um, that have come about by couples who have visited this special shrine. Yes, yes. And the shrine is also very special and sacred because martyr's blood has been shed upon it. 
Uh, a matter of fact, there are two documented martyrs. Again, we're going to speak more about the Florida martyrs in just a few moments, um, but I won't be able to detail all the Florida martyrs because there are many of them. But uh, there are two that are documented at the Sacred Acre, and that's Eladio and Roberto, July 22nd, 1740. Uh, and they were martyred in defense of protecting the Sacred Acre. Um, from those who were attempting to kill them, from the Creek Indians and British Protestants who uh, were martyring and who were pillaging the state of Florida by that point in their conquest. Uh, so it, it's also a sacred place where martyrs have shed their blood for the sake of our Catholic faith. It really is uh, a very, very special place to visit, and I, I promise if you go there, you will not regret it uh, as a pilgrim, as a pilgrim seeking a deepening of your Catholic faith. So consider this, if nothing else, a strong urging and recommendation to come visit St. Augustine. It's a really yeah. cool and important and profound place. I thought now we'd, we'd shift gears and talk about these Florida martyrs, because I, I know for yeah. you especially, it's a, it's a topic of deep passion and interest, uh, and it's obviously connected to St. Augustine in, in many ways. But these are some uh, martyrs in America that don't or haven't yet gotten, I think, the attention that they deserve. And there's there's a growing movement of interest around them, especially as there's whisperings of a possible cause being opened sometime soon. Uh, but I was I was thinking we could we could set the context for who these people were and then talk about some of the martyrs in particular and then maybe maybe round it off with uh, where the cause kind of sits today or, or what the sure. situation is. Uh, so let's start off with, with uh, we call them the Martyrs of La Florida. And I know um, geographically it doesn't line up with our, our state lineup. I think right. La Florida at a time included Florida, but also Georgia and some other states in the southeast. Is that right? That is correct. Yeah, La Florida, the territory actually included Florida, uh, parts of Alabama, Georgia, Louisiana, and even Mississippi at one point. And so, so it was a large I think territory. The, the common story we hear, and again, this is what I heard in fourth grade when we're studying Florida history, is that, you know, sometime in the, you know, 16th, 17th century, you had all of these Spanish conquistadors who came to Florida, to the New World, and they were heartless, they were greedy, they were violent, they came for gold and to enslave the Native Americans, and they brought disease, so they killed off a lot of them. This was like the epitome of colonization. And, you know, now there's such an interest, especially with critical theory around decolonization studies. And many people would look at the Spanish conquistadors as the paradigm of everything that was wrong with right. the Western colonization of the Indians. Again, that's that's the stereotypical story that I think most of us, especially in Florida, learned in school. But is this the true story, Father Blake? <laughs> no. <laughs> no, it is not the true story. And uh, just to give a little more context to what you're speaking, you, I mean, you're absolutely right. I mean, this is what I even grew up in Catholic school learning about the Native Americans and the quote-unquote conquest of the Spanish Empire against the Native Americans. Uh, and you do see this program, and it's not, it's not unfamiliar to us, and it's very obvious by this point that there is an aggressive anti-Catholic agenda in secular educational systems. Uh, there's an aggressive agenda to really dismantle all the foundations of Western civilization, especially the Judeo-Christian foundations. And so history is narrated in this way of casting only all Catholic activities in a negative light or highlighting different isolated facts about the Catholic enterprises at the cost of, of course, the overarching narrative, which is fundamentally positive and uplifting. And so the full narrative of the Florida martyrs and of 
really the colonization of the Spaniards, better put, the evangelization of the Spaniards of the New World, was something that was taught to me by a good friend. Her name is Dr. Mary Sohan, an incredible, incredible woman. I met her when I was a seminarian, and, and she first uh, started regaling me with stories uh, of the uh, of the beginnings of the Spanish colonization period. Um, any way that good Catholics begin a conversation over a good glass of wine. <laughs> so we're sitting together having some red wine together, some steaks, and she started telling me about her involvement in something called the cause for canonization of the Florida martyrs, which by this point, the cause has already been officially opened and they have been declared servants of God. So we're very far along the way. Beatification should be coming up soon, hopefully. Um, so we are far along the process of canonizing these men, women, and children who are martyred. But she began telling me these stories and I was absolutely blown away by the beauty and the passion and also the contradiction that her narrative based upon documentation, which she herself, along with others, have recently discovered in the past 10, 15 years. Uh, they've conglomerated this different data and information from uh, various sources uh, that have been missing. So remember that after the British tried to conquer the state of Florida, the Spaniards disperse a lot of their records um, out of the Floridian Peninsula. So they're spread throughout the rest of the Spanish Empire. At this time, I'm not at liberty to, uh, to share the exact sources because the cause for canonization is still in the confidentiality phase. But as we're gathering these different sources and reading through them, we're finding that there's a very different narrative of the colonization period of the Spanish Empire than we previously believed. The Spanish did not come as just war-hungry, greedy, lustful, conquering, uh, vicious conquistadors. That's, that's not what they came as. Um, primarily, they came as evangelists. And now that, that's not to canonize everyone. I mean, of course, there were conquistadors who did atrocities. We'll speak about it in just a moment. But there was a necessity for Pope Paul III, as well as King Charles V of Spain, to put out proclamations against the conquistadors who were committing atrocities. But that was not the fundamental purpose of the evangelization of the New World. It was a missionary activity. It was an activity driven by the Church, seeking to save souls. Uh, to give attestation to what I'm saying, to give some some meat to what I'm to, what I'm uh, stating here. I would like to quote for you directly from the journals of one of the conquistadors. His name is Pedro Menendez. I actually translated part of this myself um, in 15—it was lettered in 1574. And uh, Pedro Menendez, Menendez says the following, After the salvation of my soul, there is nothing I desire more than to spend my days in La Florida working for the salvation of souls. Working for the salvation of souls. Now, that doesn't sound to me— like a bloodthirsty, lustful conquistador who's just looking for gold. Uh, that's not the kind of men and women that came to the New World. They came for this reason, for the reason that Pedro Menendez pins explicitly firsthand of his own accord in his private journal, that he has come for the salvation and the sanctification of souls. The king of Spain himself dedicated much of his own personal income to the establishment of missions in the state of Florida. And what people don't understand is that Florida did not really possess that much value to the Spanish Empire. It was a foothold into the greater North America, but the real key to the North American continent was Cuba. That was the port that they fought for. That was the port that was the militaristic and the economic key, especially for trade in the Caribbean. Florida was a black hole at one point economically for the Spaniards. It did not have gold, it did not have many promises. It was a, a swampy wasteland that was very difficult to colonize. There were several failed uh, attempts at colonization that led to the deaths of hundreds and hundreds of people. Uh, and so there's only one reason to stay in Florida, and that was to sanctify souls and to save people's souls. And that's why they stayed. 
Uh, and this is also important to note for the historical narrative on slavery, which I know is very important, especially this time in American history when you have cancel culture and what have you. But I would like to highlight that the Spanish Empire was the first major civilization in world history to outlaw and denounce slavery, slavery, specifically with Native Americans being mistreated in the New World. Whereas in the British Empire, this same law did not take effect until 1833. And so we have a several century discrepancy here. So you have already by King Charles in the 1500s, this law being put into effect, safeguarding the dignity of Native Americans. It did not take place in the Protestant British Empire until the 19th century. And this was inspired by Pope Paul III himself in a document that he wrote entitled Sublimus Deus. And it was entitled, uh, it was, excuse me, penned in 1537 on the enslavement and evangelization of, of Native Americans. And, and I want to quote real quick just a part of this encyclical, which is really powerful and speaks once again against the narrative that's typically given to us in our world history classes in public or even Catholic schools. Pope Paul III says, We who, though unworthy, exercise on earth the power of our Lord and seek with all our might to bring those sheep of his flock who are outside into the fold committed to our charge, consider that the Indians are truly men and that they are not only capable of understanding the Catholic faith, but according to our information, they desire it exceedingly. That, that the said Indians and other peoples should be converted to the faith of Jesus Christ by preaching the word of God and by the example of good and holy living. Note that I did not say by forced conversions and by enslaving them. But that's what most people would declare. Well, the Catholic Church convert, convert all these Native Americans forcibly. I don't hear anything about forcibly converting them there. I hear directly from the Pope sitting on the chair of St. Peter, that they're to be converted through an example of a good and holy life. That is the only means of evangelization. And the first priests who come to the New World, that's exactly what they do. They inspire the Native Americans through their devotion and through their love. So that's just a brief history on the false narrative, the secular narrative that's very explicitly anti-Catholic and is trying to dismantle the Judeo-Christian origins of Western civilization versus the full narrative based on documentation written by both Native Americans and Spaniards on what actually took place in the colonization of the New World, specifically La Florida. At the risk of oversimplifying this, this true narrative, um, it, I was stunned reading some of these documents and the books and the accounts myself to discover in a lot of cases it was the British, you know, and, and please don't take this as a blanket denunciation of, of England or the United Kingdom. Father Blake and I are both Anglophiles, but yes, very was, much so. It was, <laughs> and we it was have a the, lot of listeners in England whom we love. <laughs> of course. Yeah, of course, of course. Um, but it was by and large the British, who were the great persecutors of the Native Americans, and especially, it, there seems to be very clear evidence, it was especially because of the Catholic faith of the Native right. Americans, many of whom converted to the faith, loved the faith, loved the sacraments, loved the priesthood. And so it, it was less a sort of geopolitical conflict and more a religious conflict that the Spanish, with their Catholic faith, came in, evangelized a lot of the Native Floridians, they became fervent Catholic Christians. But then once the British came in, there was this religious conflict between the Protestants and the Catholics, and that animated uh, a lot of the persecution and the martyrdom. But I think, Father Blake, uh, I've been struck not just with the 
Florida martyr accounts, but um, with Bishop Barron in California, we've come to know St. Junipero Serra a lot and his uh, mission work out in California. And then previously, uh, my book on the saints and social justice, I did a lot of research on St. Roque Gonzalez, who in a similar way set up these encomienda systems of of colonization, if you want to, if you want to put it that way, or civilization, if you want to say, where uh, Native Americans were able to come and experience, you know, all the goods of a developed culture, a developed civilization, but still had the freedom to decide to become Christian. They weren't forcibly converted, um, but many of them were com were drawn to Christianity because of the witness of holy priests like Saint Roque and Saint Junipero and some of these Florida martyrs. So. Let's right. let's talk a little bit more about um, some specific places and specific people. We've we've kind of been speaking in generalities here, so maybe let's turn to the to the Florida mission system itself. Talk about some of these places, where they were, and what life was like inside them. Oh, most certainly, and and you're going to see a lot of my proud Floridian shine through, <laughs> and this glowing admiration uh, uh, of the Florida mission chain. So it's the oldest mission chain in America. It predated Junipero Serra's mission chain by about 200 years, um, and it was also an incredibly large and successful mission chain, especially by the 17th century. So that means by the 1600s. Um, it included, as we already mentioned, modern-day Florida as well as parts of Georgia, Alabama, and Louisiana, and. At the height of the Florida mission chain period, which would be around the 17th century, mid-17th century, there were tens of thousands of Native Americans and Spaniards living on these doctrinas, what was what they called them. That means little, little places where they share the doctrine, so the doctrine of the Catholic faith. Native Americans were not forced to live in the doctrina. They had the option, and many of them freely chose to live there. And, and there, this is something important to note about the difference between uh, various tribes of Native Americans. So some tribes were hostile to the Catholics who came to evangelize. Some of them were not. So, for example, the Tomoquins and Appalachians, um, these Appalachian Indians, were very open, actually. They were a peaceful nation of Native Americans that were very open and willing to live with the Spaniards and did not see them as a threat, and they were especially impressed by the holiness of the priest, the Jesuits and Franciscans uh, who evangelized them. Whereas the Creek, who eventually allied themselves with the British, they are very hostile towards the evangelist of the, excuse me, the evangelist of the Spanish Empire, uh, and they become these allies with the British that eventually invade the state of Florida. Uh, but by the mid-17th century, tens of thousands of Native Americans, especially Tomoquins and the um, Appalachian Native Americans, are living with the Spaniards freely and without any sort of coercion. It is completely free, and they don't even have to be Catholic to live with them. The Spaniards would provide protection, would educate them, would give them resources, teach them how to plant and field, and all this, whether they were Catholic or not. They did not have to be Catholic to receive these blessings from these priests who were with them. And uh, many of them, many of them, however, were practicing Catholics, were practicing Catholics. I have two attestations here um, from different time periods. So I have one from 1616, the other one I have from 1633, both uh, from clergy, so one from Father Francisco Pareja and the other one from Bishop Calderon. The reason why I'm reading from this clergy is remember that the clergy of the New World are trying to convince the Spanish court in Spain that the Native Americans are both, A, capable of receiving the beauty of the Catholic faith, and B, worthy of receiving the beauty of the Catholic faith. This was not 
perfectly understood in Europe in the Spanish court. And so the clergy here are trying to defend and build up the Native Americans to keep them safe, but also to spread the truth that even though when we encountered them, they were pagans, even though when we encountered them, they did not know of Christ, they already had the seeds of faith within their hearts. They're not just these vicious heathens. They're human beings who have a deep love for the truth. And these priests are trying to express that fact to the royal court in Spain. And so we have first Father Francisco Pareja from 1616, and he says the following. Many persons are found, men and women, who confess and who receive Holy Communion with tears in their eyes and who show up advantageously with many Spaniards. And I shall make bold to say that with regard to the mysteries of the faith, Many of them, the Native Americans, answer better than the Spaniards because the latter are careless in these manners. The latter are careless in these matters. So what Father Francisco is claiming here is quite bold. He's telling the Spanish court, these Native Americans are not only capable of the Catholic faith, they're better Catholics than you. <laughs> you take your Catholic faith for granted. They come with tears in their eyes. We have other documentation on how the Spanish priests had to ask for guards to stand in front of the church because the Native Americans would try to break the door down in the night, not because they wanted to destroy the church, because they wanted to attend the Mass, because they wanted to adore the Holy Eucharist. They didn't understand why, if Holy Communion is God, why can't we receive him over and over and over again? This was how much love they had for Holy Communion. So they would actually stand outside of the churches all night long waiting for the liturgies to start the following day. One of the most inspiring documentations comes from 1633, Bishop Calderon of Santiago de Cuba. So at this time, the Diocese of St. Augustine, as we know it today, is not founded, but rather is under the jurisdiction of the Bishop of Cuba. And in the year 1633, he made an apostolic visit to La Florida, at which point he confirmed over 13,000 Native Americans and Spaniards in less than 11 months. Over 13,000 Native Americans and Spaniards in less than 11 months. And after his apostolic visitation, he says the following to the court of Spain. As to the Native Americans' religion, they are not idolaters, and they embrace with devotions the mystery of our holy faith. They attend Mass with regularity, and before entering the church, each one brings to the house of the priest a log of wood as contribution. They are devoted to the Virgin, and on Saturdays they attend church when her Mass is sung. On Sundays they attend the Rosary and the Salve Regina in the afternoon. They celebrate with rejoicing and devotion the birth of our Lord, all attending the midnight Mass with offerings of loaves, eggs, and other food. They subject themselves to extraordinary penances during Holy Week and during the 24 hours of Holy Thursday and Good Friday. And just a quick side note on that, the Native Americans were prone to mortification on an extreme level, so much so that the priest had to act as spiritual directors and commentators letting them know, Jesus doesn't want you to hurt yourself this much. They had similar issues in Mexico as well as in South America, even someone like St. Rose of Lima, for example, in Peru, would subject herself to extreme mortification. She was part Incan. She was part Native American. So there's something within the Native American heart that identifies with the suffering Christ in a very profound way. And the Spaniards had difficulty trying to rail them in during the season of Lent, especially, so they would not mortify themselves to the extent of hurting and harming their bodies. Uh, to continue, they attend standing, praying the rosary in complete silence, 24 men, 24 women, and 24 children on hourly shift changes. So they would make sure the rosary is being prayed perpetually. 
the children, both male and female, got go to church on non-work days and to a religious school where they are taught by a teacher whom they call the Atheki. So the Atheki is how you say teacher in Tamoquin. It was a Native American catechist and the person whom the priest have dedicated for this service. So there is a detailed historical account of Catholicism in 17th century La Florida. Once again, not a place of torture, not a place of mass execution and enslavement, the complete opposite. Native Americans hungering for the Holy Eucharist, hungering for devotion to Our Lady, and deeply in love with the Holy Catholic faith. It's those types of stories that I have swirling through my mind whenever we go visit St. Augustine. You're, you're walking these grounds and you're thinking, these have been hallowed by the feet of people 400, 500 years ago who had this deep, fervent, profound love for the faith, for the Eucharist, for Our Lady. And, you know, at the risk of, of, of exaggerating, you can almost feel that sort of spiritual electricity and energy when you're yes. there on that sacred acre, that this is a sacred place, a holy place that for hundreds of years has been fueled with the prayers of men and women and children. But <clears throat> it's, it's more than that. It's holy not just because there were fervent Christians there for so long, but also because of the martyrs. And I, I want to yeah. spend some time talking about that. The Florida martyrs, um, again, include hundreds of, of men, women, and children. Um, I wish we had, you know, it would take days or maybe months to tell all these incredible stories that we're uncovering still as a part of this beatification process. But Father Blake, I thought you could give us <clears throat> maybe an introduction and an overview to just a few sure. of them. Yeah, absolutely. Uh, so to understand the Florida martyrs, they're situated into two categories. You have those who are martyred uh, by the Native Americans, so religious priests who are martyred by Native Americans in, during the initial evangelization period. Um, and then you have the second category, which are Native Americans and Spaniards who are martyred by the British during the 17th century and, and a little bit before that as well uh, during the British conquest period. So those are sort of the two main categories. There are others in between, of course, um, but those are the two main groupings of the Florida martyrs. So you would have someone like Father Luis de Cancer. Father Luis de Cancer was martyred in modern-day Tampa Bay area. It's on the west coast of the state of Florida. And he was martyred by Native Americans uh, who were— not very affirming of the Spanish Empire, because unfortunately, there were some Spaniards who had went there before and were aggressive towards the Native Americans. So the Native Americans, out of fear, killed Father Luis de Cancer, although he himself did not come in any form of violence. So because of their, uh, their, other, their previous experiences, they're violent. The other thing that led a lot of Native Americans initially to kill the priest who came to evangelize them, um, or even their fellow Native Americans who converted to Catholicism, was polygamy. So the Catholic Church, of course, teaches monogamy, teaches that marriage between one man and one woman. A lot of the Native American tribes practice polygamy, especially the chiefs. So when the priests came and started teaching about monogamy, started teaching that we're called to give ourselves faithfully to one man, to one woman, this upsetted a lot of the, uh, of the Native American chiefs. And so that's what led to the death of of many of the priests who were killed during the uh, during the initial evangelization period. The second category is absolutely fascinating. This is Native Americans and Spaniards who, again, lived together. Um, they lived in community. They lived with great fraternal charity and love. Um, these are Native Americans and Spaniards who were martyred for the sake of their Catholic faith, particularly by the British who allowed who allied themselves with the uh, with the Creek Indians, a nation that was 
by this point, by the 17th century, making incursions into the Floridian Peninsula to conquer the Appalachian Tomoquin tribes. And so they were more than happy to accustom themselves to the British, who gave them alcohol and guns as payment um, for invading various Native American tribes and also pushing back the Spaniards in the state of Florida. The main martyr, the lead martyr of the cause, is named Antonio Cuipanija. Uh, the lead martyr was going to be Father Luis de Cancer, but after sending the proposal to Rome, it was actually Rome that decided and emphasized the importance of a Native American being the lead martyr and not a priest. Uh, and so that was something very touching for, for the cause, that, these, uh, that the Native Americans of Rome wanted to highlight them and highlight their devotion for the Catholic Church by honoring the head title with a Native American chief. So his name was Antonio Cuipa Aniha. There's a lot more information on him in the website, which we're going to include in our, in our episode notes, but I'll briefly go through his own martyrdom. Um, he was martyred with several companions on January 26, 1704. He was an Appalachian Native American. Um, he was a husband, a father, and a musician. He would used to carve flutes um, and also a great, great carpenter. Uh, he had a huge devotion to St. Joseph, which is apropos in this year of St. Joseph. Um, he loved St. Joseph, and if you read some of these letters that Antonio Cuipa had uh, written both to the government of Spain as well as to um, his fellow Native Americans, he would frequently mention St. Joseph and his desire to be a holy father and a holy husband like St. Joseph. A quick historical note, by this point, uh, Native Americans who were honored with the title of Anija, which is the name of a chief or, or a chieftain, a leader within the tribe, they had the capacity to and the right for direct recourse to the king of Spain, which was something that was, that was reserved for Spanish royalty. So whereas you have these Spanish royals that communicate with each other and have discourse to courts of law, the Native Americans were also given that opportunity for those who had received special titles of dignity. Again, something that smacks against that, that secular narrative about the suppression of the Native, Native Americans. If there was an issue with a Native American chief, that chief had the right to appeal directly to the King of Spain, and often the Royal Court of Spain would respond um, and would give them that honorary status. Uh, Antonio Cuipanija was one such Native American, and he was well-known. He was well-known by the Spaniards uh, for his intelligence, for his devotion, especially for his holiness. He would go by himself to evangelize pagan Native Americans, and he would do so through music. He would play songs that, that they knew. He would tell stories, and he would even change some of these stories in order to make it more uh, applicable. You know, So how do you tell a group of people about the 99 sheep if they've never seen a sheep before. <laughs> there are no sheep in North America. Well, you change it to the parable of something like the 99 rabbits, right? And, and so you had these clever ways of evangelization that these different evangelists would come up with, and Antonio Quipo would go and would teach and would convert. He converted many, many Native Americans to the Catholic faith. Uh, one day, he heard that the mission of Ayubale, which is in modern-day Tallahassee, was being attacked by the British and Creek Indians. And so he went there to defend the men, women, and children of Ayubale. He's captured, and he is crucified uh, along with his companions. He's tied to the stations of the cross that are in front of the church. Um, they then tear off pieces of his flesh and put coals, burning coals within them, um, and they set the cross on fire to burn him to death. Uh, during this burning, he sees a vision of the Blessed Virgin Mary, he calls the woman of the mesquite face. What that means in Spanish is the woman of the darker tone. Um, it's interesting to note how Our Lady of Guadalupe was also uh, mentioned in the same way, although Antonio would not have known anything about Guadalupe. Uh, and so he talks about the lady of the mesquite face. And as he 
looks at her. He cries out to the other men who are being crucified with him, fear not, my brothers, for our, our mother is here. Our mother is here. And he starts preaching to them and asking for forgiveness of those who are torching him from the cross. Really, really magnificent. And he eventually does die, that horrific death, on January 26, 1704. But he dies forgiving those who persecuted him and proclaiming his Catholic faith. The second story that I'll share, again, there are tons and tons of stories from the documentations that we've recently discovered, uh, but the second is one of the most touching, in my opinion, um, and it's Mariana and Jacinto. This is a mother and a son who were killed November 5th or 6th. We're not exactly sure. The documents are not clear, but we do know the year. The year is 1702, and uh, they were martyred together, and I'm going to read a direct quote from the documents, uh, from the eyewitness accounts of their martyrdom, just so you could hear their story. The Creek Indians kept asking the Indians, meaning Mariana and Jacinto, whether they believed in their ancient ancestral religion, paganism. But all were baptized converts to Catholicism. And on realizing this, the Creek Indians told them that if they too did not want to die there, they should renounce their Catholic religion and customs and spit on the cross. Thirty-five of the forty-five villagers refused to spit on the cross— these are all Native Americans, by the way. So they're not, the priests are not there. By this point, the priests are already killed. There's no one there watching. There's no one forcing them to do this. These are Native Americans freely choosing the Catholic faith. So 35 of the 45 villagers refused to spit on the cross and instead accepted torture and martyrdom on a bonfire burning with crosses. The assailants seized the daughter of the Indian chief, the young mother and widow, Mariana, along with her nine-year-old son, Mariana, renowned for her holiness and charity, along with her son Jacinto, refused to spit on the cross. Mariana said they could do no such a thing because such a denial was tantamount to destroying her heart because for her, this cross and her heart were the same. The creek first tortured and killed the son in front of the mother. The mother and son prayed the rosary together through it all. But such was the holiness of this young boy that in the face of his torturous plight, he was praying his Ave Marias and the entire Holy Rosary that he knew so well. And his mother is praying the entire time along with him. He kept praying the entire time until being in the throes of death, he was un unable to do so. But neither the boy nor the Indian Mariana wavered. They never lost their faith and their hope in the resurrection and the life everlasting. What a powerful, powerful story about these first Catholics in our country, a Native American mother and her son, a nine-year-old boy who would rather die than spit on the cross and stop praying his rosary. And, you know, I see these Native American martyrs, the martyrs of La Florida, as perfect and paramount for our time in American history when we're suffering explicit persecution for our Catholic faith, how we are not called to fold, but rather to stand firm as the first Native Americans in our country did, refusing to spit on the cross of our faith, refusing to deny the beauty of our Catholic religion, and to really stand up, even if the cost is shedding our blood. So I look to these children, to these men, to these women as a perfect example. So there's just two of the stories. Again, I could regale you with many, many more, um, but that gives you an insight to how the Native Americans that initially converted to Catholicism in our country held strong to the Catholic faith. Another thing, and, and we probably don't have time to go down this path right now, Father Blake, but another common pattern among these martyrs is their willingness to die for the Eucharist. Uh, you yes. mentioned already how devoted they were to the Mass. You know, they'd wait 
all night just to, to be there for the liturgy. They'd, they'd cling to the church walls to be there when the doors are open. But we have stories of these martyrs that would literally give their lives in protection of a ciborium holding yes. the Eucharistic hosts. Um, I think wasn't there, there's one story of, was it a young boy who, yes. who was killed and found grasping the, the Eucharist? Yeah, the 14-year-old, his name is Manuel, and uh, he was martyred, again, by the Creek and British. Uh, f- he was a sacristan and an altar boy. He wanted to become a priest, and uh, they set the church on fire, and he asked them to not do it because he was worried about the Eucharist being desecrated. Um, and so he was trying to protect the Blessed Sacrament. Uh, the Creek Indians mocked him and said, well, if you really believe in your God, why don't you put up your hands to pray for rain to put the fire out in the church? And the boy got on his knees to do so. And when he raised up his arms, the uh, Creek and British cut his arms off um, to mock him. And then they ended up drowning him in a trough not far from the from the church building. Fourteen years old, 14 years old, died a martyr for the Eucharist, trying to protect the dignity of the Blessed Sacrament. So you're right, that is something important for us, how they recognized, they recognized in their purity of heart that the Eucharist was the center, the source and summit of our, of our faith, and they were willing to shed blood for it, just how Christ shed his blood for them in the sacrifice of the Holy Mass. And I'm, maybe, again, I'm misremembering this, but I thought there was another story where a young child, I think, fell on the Eucharist as he was shot. He was carrying the ciborium out of the church. Right, that was a grown man, actually, in that case. You're right, you're right. That is another story. And if I recall correctly, I have to look up the documentation. I don't want Dr. Mary, you know, saying that I misquoted or mistold one of the stories, so I don't have it directly in front of me. Um, but if I remember correctly, that actually happened in St. Augustine. So it didn't happen in Tallahassee or in the um, Appalachian chain of missions, but it happened in the St. Augustine mission where someone actually died holding the host, um, holding the suborn, and protecting it with his body rather than seeing the host desecrated. So again, these are just some of the stories. There's a lot more. And before we wrap up here, well, I want to share a few more resources, but I, I want to tie it back to St. Augustine itself. Some of these stories, as Father Blake has mentioned, happened in Tampa Bay on the west coast of central Florida, others in Tallahassee, the Panhandle. But some of these are right in and around this sacred acre. Their blood is still mm-hmm. intermingled with the soil there. In fact, I know on some of the tours you take with with kids, when you go visit the fort, this big Coquina fort at St. Augustine, there's still bullet holes from uh, when when people were martyred, when Catholic Native Americans were martyred right there at the fort. Yes. Yeah. And what I usually do, um, one of my the things I love uh, to do is to take people on these pilgrimages, these spiritual pilgrimages to St. Augustine. So sometimes I take little groups of prisoners or what have you. And it is it's powerful to stand on the walls of the fort. And this is one of the things that we focus on is we stand on the wall of the fort and I show them exactly where on which side of the fort some of the martyrs were killed right within the firing range of the Spaniards. So it was right outside, right outside of where they could defend them. Um, But it was so that they could be tortured by watching their Catholics be martyred. Uh, And so that's holy ground. Uh, And usually what I do is I have them take a seashell, the famous St. James seashell, and I'll have them press it to the soil where the martyrs were killed. Um, as a way to consecrate and to sanctify uh, that seashell as a reminder of, of that martyrdom. So whenever you go to St. Augustine, my brothers and sisters, it is literally baptized in the blood of martyrs. I mean, we're especially the sacred acre and the spacing between the sacred acre and the fort, which at that time was was used regularly by the Spaniards and Native Americans as a means of traveling back and forth um, with Mission Nombre de Dios. I mean, that place is riddled with the blood of martyrs and their bones. It really is a, a magnificent and sacred place. 
So again, we encourage everyone, whether you live in Florida or not, to come visit this great city of St. Augustine. This episode was not sponsored by the city of St. Augustine or the Diocese of St. Augustine. Um, Although, it's just, if you want to pick us yeah. up, small price, $25.99. We hope this audition, we, yeah. we, we're auditioning here to be the uh, public relations team for the Diocese of St. Augustine. Uh, but in seriousness, a beautiful, holy place. Um, if you're going there, I'd encourage you to make make the central place of visit this sacred acre. Again, it's about one acre, but there you'll find the shrine of Our Lady of La Leche. You'll find some ancient graves and tombstones. There's a an enormous cross. I don't know, maybe 100, yes. 150 feet in the air. You can see it approaching for miles, but it's erected right on the coast at the spot where the very first mass in the United States was celebrated. And then right off to the side of it, there's a rep, either a rep, it must be a replica of the the altar at which Correct. Replica. Uh, a, a replica. Yeah. The other original would have deteriorated, but you can get a sense for what this mass, uh, where it was and what it had been like. Um, again, feeding this counter narrative, father Blake and I have been mentioning these Spanish, uh, conquistadors come, they land the very first thing they do is get off their ships and celebrate a mass of Thanksgiving right on the shore. Um, so these were devout men. Um, they were great evangelists. The Native Americans became some of the great and fervent early Catholics of North America, and their story needs to be told more widely. Um, one more just very practical bit of advice. If you come visit, start with that sacred acre. Make your way to the fort. You can get a map and see where it is, but it's it's in walkable distance, maybe a couple miles. And if you if you travel along the main road, you'll walk by the statue of David that I mentioned at the beginning. So that's a yes, good little yes. Catholic pilgrimage route. You can go from the Sacred Acre to Michelangelo's David to the fort um, and have a little pilgrimage half day with, with those sites. Yeah. Anything else yeah. you want to add before? Uh, I just want to mention these final resources, but anything else before then? Yeah, again, just to I'm going to encourage all of our listeners and viewers, please educate yourselves on these uh, on these initial martyrs and, of course, these sacred places in the state of Florida. Once again, not just for, you know, we're not trying to make propaganda for our home state as much as we love it. But more than that, uh, they really are pivotal places, pivotal in players, history. <laughs> <laughs> which could be available for you for 1999. <laughs> it's like, man, this this whole episode's full of commercials. We're on fire. This ain't on the scene. No, um, they were pivotal places uh, within American church history. I mean, this this is our heritage, especially at this time when so many people are trying to erase American history and erase Western culture as a whole. Uh, it's it's important for us to keep the memory alive of what actually took place and the blood that was shed for the sake of our country. Um, and so I encourage you all, please visit these places. Please support the shrine. Um, again, it's not just a shrine for the Diocese of St. Augustine. That is a national shrine. That is a shrine, a heritage site for us as Catholics in the United States. So please do all that you can to support the shrine, to support the cause of Florida Martyrs. We're going to include a link to the website for Florida Martyrs where you can make donations, or you can also just send letters and prayers of support. Uh, there's a lot more stories on there of the Florida Martyrs as well. So we encourage you to do whatever you can to, uh, to support and visit the city of St. Augustine for your own spiritual enrichment, but also for the promulgation of the cause of canonization of the Florida martyrs. And in addition to that website, I'm going to include links to a couple of articles that Father Blake has written for the Word on Fire blog. One is titled, The Martyrs of Florida, and the other is Antonio Quipa and Companions, which tells a little bit more of his story. 
And then we have three books we're going to recommend here. There's not a lot of good up-to-date literature on this yet. I imagine that's going to change as the beatification nears, but really the three only available books on it right now are, first of all, one titled The Cross and the Sand, The Early Catholic Church in Florida, 1513 to 1870. It's by a man named Michael Gannon. And then we have The Florida Martyrs, Compelled by Compassion by Eric Olson. And then finally, this is a good one for the kids. My, my kids have read this one and have loved it. The Martyrs of La Florida, A Heroic Story of Catholic Faith, A Graphic Novel. And what's funny is that Father Blake himself <laughs> is in this graphic novel. So I'll let you yes. get the book and see if you can find him in there. Yes, which I was not aware of until it was published. <laughs> so it'll be like but, uh, a Where's, was, a where's Waldo. He's very small. It's, he's hard to recognize, but you'll, yes. you'll see if you can flip through there and find Father Blake. And, All and right. another great resource, by the way, um, and I forgot to include this, EWTN released a documentary, which I participated in, in as well. It's called They Might Be Saints. They Might Be Saints. And it's not, you know, I always... I always laugh when I include that in my biography when I travel and give talks to places, you know. Father Blake Britton was featured in the documentary. They might be saints. <laughs> they definitely won't, under any circumstance, ever be a saint. Father Blake right. was in that one. <laughs> like, don't, don't announce it like that. It's like talking about me, right? Yeah, right. So I'm in a documentary called They Might Be Saints, uh, not about me, about the Florida Martyrs. <laughs> And, uh, and it's detailing their lives. It's very well done. EWTN did a fantastic job with it. So I do also encourage you all to purchase that video. Um, it's a great, great DVD, and it um, has a lot of good notes. Good. We'll link to that one as well. Well, thanks so much for joining us on this episode of the Burroughshire Podcast. We hope it inspired you to come visit our great state of Florida and this holy and sacred ground in St. Augustine. We'll see you next time on the Burroughshire Podcast. Thanks, guys. God. God bless you all.